Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome, everybody, to the Heritage Foundation. Delighted to have you here uh, today. Uh, my name is John Malcolm. I am the Vice President of the Institute for Constitutional Government uh, here at Heritage. I would ask you to take a moment, if you haven't already done so, uh, to please silence your cell phones so they don't go off inadvertently uh, during the program. So exactly one month ago today, on July the 9th, President Donald Trump nominated Judge Brett Kavanaugh to be an associate justice on the United States Supreme Court. People are now coming to learn more about Judge Kavanaugh's very distinguished career. Yale Law School, Supreme Court clerkship for the justice whom he would replace, Anthony Kennedy, partner in a prestigious law firm, associate independent counsel under Ken Starr, senior associate White House counsel, and staff president, uh, a staff assistant to President George W. Bush, and for the past dozen years, a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. But what sort of a judge and what sort of a person is Brett Kavanaugh? We are very fortunate to have with us today four people who are very well positioned to answer both of those questions because they each clerked for Judge Kavanaugh. The first person that we will hear from is Rebecca Tableson, who clerked for Judge Kavanaugh in 2010 and 2011 before going on and clerking for Justice Antonin Scalia uh, on the Supreme Court. She received her undergraduate and law degrees from Yale. She's currently a prosecutor in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and has previously worked at the Washington, D.C. firm of Kirkland and Ellis. After Rebecca, we will hear from Sarah Pitlick. Sarah, who clerked for Judge Kavanaugh from 2010 to 2011, got her undergraduate degree from Boston College, a master's in philosophy from Georgetown, a master's degree as a Fulbright Fellow in Applied Biomedical Ethics from the Catholic University of Leuven, hope I pronounced that right, in Belgium, and her law degree from Yale. After practicing for several years at firms in St. Louis and here in Washington, she currently serves as special counsel for the St. Thomas More Society, where she works on a variety of religious liberty issues. After Sarah, we'll hear from Porter Wilkinson, Porter clerked for Judge Kavanaugh in 2007-2008 before clerking for Chief Justice John Roberts on the Supreme Court. She received her undergraduate degrees from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, go Tar Heels, and her law degree from the University of Virginia, go Cavaliers. While at Chapel Hill, she was a three-time All-American selection in women's lacrosse. And in 2012, she was inducted into the Virginia chapter of the U.S. Lacrosse Hall of Fame for her contributions to the sport. She's a practicing lawyer here in Washington, DC, having previously practiced appellate and labor and employment law at Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher. And then finally, 
you will hear from Roman Martinez. He clerked for Judge Kavanaugh from 2008 and 2009 before also going to clerk for the Chief Justice. He got his undergraduate degree from Harvard, a master's in philosophy from uh, Cambridge, and his law degree from Yale. He's currently a partner at Latham and Watkins, where he has argued seven cases before the U.S. Supreme Court already in his young career. Prior to joining Latham and Watkins, he served as an assistant to the U.S. Solicitor General, as an advisor on the Iraqi constitutional process to the U.S. Ambassador to Iraq, and as the director for the Iraq table at the National Security Council. Please join me in welcoming our panelists. Rebecca, the floor is yours. Good afternoon, and thank you all for having me. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what Judge Kavanaugh is like as a person and as a boss. A lot of people have said that Judge Kavanaugh is humble and down to earth, and those are true, but those cliches don't really quite capture the full extent of the man. And similarly, people have said that he is quite normal. That, again, is true. That alone would be unusual, I think, for someone as accomplished and uh, brilliant as he is. But again, it's not quite right. He's not actually just normal. He is, in fact, way, way nicer than normal. Uh, he is not only approachable, he is more approachable than almost anyone you will ever approach. And I don't just mean among the ranks of judges on the DC Circuit or justices on the Supreme Court. He has a great sense of humor and a very easy laugh. He laughs at basically every joke I ever make, even though I think objectively not more than 10% are funny. <laughs> um, during, he's one of those people that really sort of makes you feel good. During the clerkship year, it's not unusual for law clerks to bring members of their family to visit the court and to see oral argument, to come into chambers and meet the judge. And uh, everyone's family is diverse, and those visiting family members have differing levels of sophistication when it comes to understanding the cases before the DC Circuit or knowing who Brett Kavanaugh is. Um, but with the judge, you don't need to worry about that. It doesn't matter if your great aunt comes and says something horribly offensive to him, or your brother falls asleep at oral argument, or your nephew has a tantrum in his office. Uh, he never makes anyone feel awkward or out of place. He rolls with it. He is just kind and friendly across the board. The same is true across the ideological spectrum. Judge Kavanaugh's colleagues on the DC Circuit are diverse uh, in their judicial philosophies, but at least when I was there, they are not diverse in their views of Judge Kavanaugh. Rather, their views of him are uniformly as a respected, collegial, valued colleague who works very hard and who is a straight shooter and who is unfailingly polite and kind to his colleagues. Similarly, he's hired law clerks from across the ideological spectrum, and I think he values um, dissent, disagreement, and banter in chambers. He, uh, he, he sort of follows a long and careful process in deciding what he thinks about, about a case, and he's open to, again, dissent and, and banter in that process. That being said, I should say that on the few occasions that I did disagree with him, 
I never actually managed to budge him from where he finally settled. So <laughs> take that for what it's worth. Um, but ideological disagreement never impairs his personal relationships with his law clerks or with his colleagues. Those are all uniformly strong. And I think for those reasons, if confirmed, Judge Kavanaugh will be a breath of fresh air on the Supreme Court. Um, his humility and his collegiality, I think, will improve the atmosphere there. He's also going to be unique as a boss on the Supreme Court. Uh, it's been widely reported that Judge Kavanaugh has hired uh, a majority of his clerks have been women, which is very unusual um, in this space. The year that I clerked on the Supreme Court, I think 26 of the 39 clerks were men. And that is a very sort of typical ratio on that court. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh hires more women than any of the justices currently on the Supreme Court. One year, he even had all four of his clerks women. No justice on the Supreme Court has ever done that. And by doing that, Judge Kavanaugh has really contributed to diversifying this sliver of the legal profession. It's not just hiring us. It's also that he uh, goes on to be a, a lifelong mentor and an advocate for us, and that really makes a difference. And I know a lot of people have sort of talked about mentorship and advocacy in general terms, and I think that can sometimes be a little opaque. Like, what does that really mean? What is he actually doing besides uh, lending me his name for my resume? But it, it really is more than that. And I'll just tell a small story that's uh, not particularly unusual. It's only interesting because it is so typical. Um, so I clerked for Judge Kavanaugh, and then the year after, I clerked for Justice Scalia. And I, after I, I secured the clerkship with Judge Kavanaugh while I was still in law school, which is very typical. And while I was in law school, uh, again, before I had begun working for the judge, he really encouraged me to apply to clerk on the Supreme Court, which is something I, I wasn't sure about just because it's a sort of scary thing. And he reviewed my application materials carefully. I think I used um, the word comprise incorrectly, if I remember right, and, um, and before I submitted them. And then while I was still in law school, uh, Judge Kavanaugh learned that Justice Scalia was interviewing candidates for the clerkship year that would be after my year with Judge Kavanaugh. And Judge Kavanaugh called one of my professors in law school and said something like, I think Rebecca would be a great fit with Justice Scalia. Um, do you agree? And when she did, he said, okay, well, if you're willing, I think today would be a very good day to potentially call Justice Scalia and tell him that. And fortunately, she did. And I got an interview and with Justice Scalia three days later. I spent, I, I don't know, the majority of th those three days on the phone with Judge Kavanaugh in his chambers. Again, again, this is before I had done a minute of actual work for him. Uh, I called him 10 times a day uh, for pep talks and for inane questions like about wardrobe and um, to talk through difficult legal questions that I uh, thought I would face in the Scalia interview. And he always made the time for me despite his busy schedule. Um, I, I got the job, and when I did, I, he was my first call after I got off the phone with Justice Scalia, and he acted um, totally unsurprised, even though I felt like I was going to die. And he um, never once suggested that what he had done for me was in any way 
extraordinary or required particular gratitude, although I feel particular gratitude. That's just what he's like with his clerks all the time. And not just with his clerks. He makes that kind of time for his family, obviously, for his community, for his church. And, you know, today, I, it's ten, almost 10 years later, and I have uh, three children, ages three and under, and I really attribute my still vibrant legal career in large part to Brett Kavanaugh. Thanks. Sarah? Okay. Um, thank you very much for having us here to talk about this, um, one of our favorite topics of conversation, <laughs> uh, at least among ourselves. Uh, so um, I just want to share two stories. Sorry, is that microphone not close enough? I just want to share two anecdotes of my experiences with the judge and then just suggest maybe why it matters who he is as a human being and not just um, all of the other sort of uh, more objective criteria that we're looking at. Um, so I first met the judge at a dinner at my law school uh, where I was lucky enough to be seated with him, but I am embarrassed uh, to admit that I really didn't know who he was. Uh, I, I knew his uh, title was judge, but uh, at that time, I was not particularly interested in judges. I, uh, <laughs> uh, you may have heard I had come from philosophy graduate school. I was planning to go back to philosophy graduate school. I had grand plans to write a dissertation and teach philosophy of law and ethics and Clerking wasn't really a thing, you know. The process looked very scary to me, the uh, application process. Um, I didn't really have the stomach for it. I was several years older than um, your average law student. I had taken six years in between college and, grad and uh, law school. And um, I really, I didn't think I had the time to spend a year slaving away for some stuffy judge uh, just to get a credential or whatnot that I didn't necessarily think I would ever need. So um, I hadn't really done any of the things that you do to get yourself, you know, qualified to be, except for obviously I was in law school, <laughs> but, uh, and I had done fairly well, but I had not done any of the things that you would do, like starting with learning the names of the most illustrious judges in the country. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So being an idiot, uh, I told the judge all those things that night. <laughs> if you've met Judge Kavanaugh, you know that he is um, disarming. He has an extremely disarming, uh, kind, and open personality. Um, he does not lead with his resume. He is the opposite of intimidating. Uh, and in his friendly, disarming manner, I just sort of chatted with him about all sorts of things. We talked about uh, growing up Irish Catholic, about being uh, educated by the Jesuits, about playing sports, about his, um, to the extent he even talked about himself at all, which is really not, he tends to sort of direct the conversation away from himself. It was anecdotes from his time as a student in New Haven. You know, it, it was all extremely uh, normal, down-to-earth conversations you would have um, with any exceptionally nice person, you know, that you met. And he did not just take that time with me that night. He spent that entire evening talking to students. Even, you know, he gave a talk, certainly, and then he uh, sat down and he spoke to students for the rest of the dinner, and then he actually, uh, you know, accepted a kind of a spur-of-the-moment invitation to spend more time meeting more students. Um, and he talked to all of us about what our goals were and our aspirations and our interests. Um, and he just uh, he he just displayed the manner that you all are hearing about today, um, uh, and 
as a result, in spite of my idiocy, uh, he became a kind of a friend and mentor to me after that night, even though I wasn't planning to clerk. Um, and over time, and through knowing him personally, clerking began to look a little less terrifying uh, and uh, a little more like a, a, a kind of an opportunity, a valuable opportunity. And, um, and so uh, my path took a little turn, and that little turn uh, resulted in a lot, you know, a lot going far down a path that I really would never have even considered or thought was within my reach or something um, that I could do um, before then. So the judge, in his kindness, just on that one night, and then obviously afterward, uh, really changed the course of my career and life. So... Um, and then, uh, if I had not already tested the limits of his sort of generosity and tolerance, uh, in between when he offered me the clerkship and when I clerked, I had a baby. So uh, when I came back to clerk for the judge, um, I had a toddler, which was an unprecedented situation. I'm not sure if anyone since then has clerked with an, you know, as a mom, but um, certainly had not happened yet at that point. And uh, as you might imagine. I was terrified, uh, again, because clerk, clerking is not known for its uh, flexibility, right? Your flexibility in hours, and clerks are not terribly known for their negotiating power. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I was facing what I thought would be, you know, one of the most grueling years, rewarding, but grueling years of my life, and I was in pretty new mom. I had a one-year-old, and I don't know if any of you have ever met any one-year-olds, but they're fairly demanding. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I was concerned, uh, and I didn't really know how I was going to manage it or whether the judge was going to sort of see it as anything that needed managing at all, you know, or if it was just going to be sort of my problem to deal with. Uh, um, I certainly didn't want him to take away any of my responsibilities or make any special allowances for me, but obviously the sort of pace and, and um, the sort of the hours, just the hours, you know, of the clerkship were going to be hard for me to deal with. But I didn't know how to deal with that myself. Um, but fortunately, I didn't have anything to worry about because a couple of weeks or months before I clerked, I got a call from Judge Kavanaugh, and he just put it out there. He said, you're a mom. Coming to clerk. You know, uh, we ha I haven't done this before. You haven't done this before. Let's figure out what we need to do to make the clerkship you know, just as rewarding for you as it would be otherwise, but also to make it possible for you to, um, you know, be a mother uh, while you're doing it. And he asked for my ideas about how to do that. Uh, he didn't tell me what would work for me. He didn't, you know, uh, prescribe the best solution based on his infinite wisdom or what he'd seen in other contexts. He didn't presume anything. He asked me what I thought would work. He gave me some suggestions and ideas. We thought about it together. And um, we made the accommodations that I needed to, you know, see my son every day and also um, be a clerk for Judge Kavanaugh. And then after that, in chambers, you know, plenty of women in the workplace can attest there's sort of technical accommodations, but maybe you experience kind of softer disadvantages uh, while you're being a parent in the workplace. Maybe you don't get the prize jobs or, you, you know, or important decisions are made while you're not in the office or this kind of thing. And that never, ever was the case the year that I clerked um, seamlessly without really ever, I, I don't remember it ever even being a topic of conversation. <clears throat> he made me feel completely welcome and completely valued and completely equal to all of my co-clerks and 
Rebecca here was one of my co-clerks, and they followed suit. Um, and it was it was an, a really an ideal environment to uh, to be a young mom. If you if you got to work that hard as a young mom, this was the place to do it. So um, I've always been grateful to the judge for that. And I think that it is um, symbolic or emblematic of the way he treats all of us in stories like Rebecca's and stories that you'll hear. And because um, these are not unique things, the baby part might be unique, <laughs> but the uh, the rest of it is not unique. We all have tales of how his magnanimity made like a huge difference in our careers or our the course of our lives. Um, and then just briefly, I, you know, why these qualities matter. Uh, they matter because he doesn't just stop being himself when he puts on a robe, right? And if you look at his uh, practices as a judge, they manifest all of these personal qualities that, that you see in him as a person. So you can see it in the way he treats litigants. You can see it in the way he treats them at oral, uh, you know, people at oral argument with uh, respect. He, he gives every argument the benefit of the doubt. He gives credit to people's um, concerns and feelings, um, even when he has to decide against them, sometimes especially when he has to decide against them. He goes out of his way to recognize the legitimate concerns of the parties who you know, may or may not prevail. He, um, he considers the very best version of every argument. You know, He looks behind the briefs to make sure that what he's thinking about is the absolute best version of you know, what the argument is for that party. Um, he's incredibly respectful of his colleagues. As Rebecca mentioned, he's um, collegial. He speaks with, about his colleagues unfailingly with respect, even, you know, the ones with whom he disagrees. Um, he, he uh, it's evident, sorry, it's evident in the way he speaks about the people who have been his mentors. He has a, you know, a real respect and admiration for the people who have worked with him and that he's worked for throughout his career. And he he talks about them with gratitude and admiration always. Um, it's evident in his, his sort of determination to make absolutely every opinion the best it can be. And he works and works and works and works to make it as clear as possible so that everyone can read it and understand, you know, what he's saying about the law. Um, it's evident in his fidelity to precedent, which is just definitionally subordinating your own, you know, view to the view of prior jurists. Um, it's evident his humility is evident in his deference to the texts of statutes and the, the will of the people um, expressed in those statutes and in the Constitution. Um, and it's especially evident in his um, his conception of the role of the judge as constrained within, you know, the constitutional architecture. So I, I don't think that these stories that you see everywhere about what a great guy Judge Kavanaugh is and, you know, how, how great he is in the community and how great he is to his family and how great he is to his clerks, um, I've, I've, I don't think that they're irrelevant. I think that they matter to, uh, to assessing what he's going to be like as a judge because we're looking for a judge who does not arrogantly assume that he is the one who knows best just because he's wearing the robe. Um, you know, we're looking for someone whose who's humility and kindness and respect for people and for the law that we can rely on. And um, I think that we can rely on those things in Judge Kavanaugh because he displays them in every aspect of his life. Thank you. Um, Again, my name's Porter Wilkinson, and I clerked for the judge in 2007 and 2008. So that means I was in his second year of clerks. 
He joined the D.C. Circuit in May 2006, and I interviewed with him in the fall of 2006 for a clerkship in 2007 and 2008. So I was aware of his sterling credentials and his reputation, um, having served in government for many years, but I didn't know much about what Judge Kavanaugh would be like as a judge. And when I went to Chambers as uh, his young law clerk, I was just struck by how humble he was in approaching his job. In law school, you, you study judicial opinions. You read case after case after case, and you analyze them and study them. And so you come away with the impression that judges know all the answers and that their opinions are just imparting their wisdom to you, and they, just, they, they have this fountain of knowledge. And I went into Judge Kavanaugh's chambers and was just so struck by the way he approached cases. He didn't pretend to know the answers. He didn't come at cases with a particular personal or policy view. He just worked hard to find out what the answer was. And for him, that meant reading the briefs and finding the best strengths and weaknesses um, of both sides' arguments. And on the D.C. Circuit, you have a lot of administrative law cases. So that means understanding sometimes very large records. Some of the cases um, that come before the D.C. Circuit have been percolating in the administrative agency for a decade or more. And so the record can come in, in books that are about this big, if not, if not this big. And Judge Kavanaugh would pore over those records. He wanted to know the details of the case as well as the advocates who were going to appear before him. And we, would, we were just in, in awe of how hard he would work um, as a judge to find out what the right answer was. And that meant respecting the law in every case, um, the precedent in the D.C. Circuit, as well as from the uh, U.S. Supreme Court, and making sure that he knew what the best arguments were for each side. At oral argument, he would press both sides. He wouldn't, um, he wouldn't come predisposed to make one lawyer look bad or um, to just get the answers he wanted. He did truly want to find out what the best answer for, um, was in the case. I think there's no better education in the law than working for Judge Kavanaugh, having come away after my first year and understanding how hard you need to work um, as a lawyer. You don't need to know all the answers, but you do need to work really hard to find out what the right answer is. And to see his fairness and civility and collegiality, um, these are the hallmarks of the best parts of the legal profession. And to have seen those firsthand um, in my first job out of law school, I just will be forever grateful to Judge Kavanaugh for having picked me as a law clerk and for having given me that education. Um, since my clerkship, uh, some things that Judge Kavanaugh and I have in common are that we are both big sports fans. So Judge Kavanaugh is a lifelong Maryland basketball fan. I, of course, went to UNC and grew up in Charlottesville and went to UVA Law School. So we have some conflicting allegiances. Um, so throughout the clerkship year and afterwards, we've had a healthy rivalry. I've given him a very hard time about the Coach K moniker. Not going to let him live that down. And um, Judge Kavanaugh is also unique. Many men aren't interested in the women's version of a sport. But Judge Kavanaugh and I are both very interested in women's lacrosse. Judge Kavanaugh's two daughters play, and his cousin, Megan Ward, was an all-star lacrosse goalie for the UNC women's lacrosse program. She was playing in goal in 2013 and 2016 when the Tar Heels won the NCAA um, national championships. So Judge Kavanaugh, uh, we exchange emails every year, scouting reports, um, pre-game analysis, post-game analysis, uh, tournament brackets, and he is immersed in the details. And he takes his daughters to games. 
to instill the love of the sport in them. He has seen five NCAA um, Women's Lacrosse Championships. I'm not sure I can say that, that I've seen that many in person. Um, but when in 2009, it was the year after I had clerked for him, Judge Kavanaugh showed up to the NCAA Lacrosse Final Four in Baltimore with his three-year-old daughter, Margaret. I think Margaret might have been one of the youngest fans at the game that night, but he was so excited to start sharing these experiences with her and his love of sports that he had grown up with. Um, and it was just really exciting to me to see him um, starting to pass that on to the next generation. He doesn't just like women's lacrosse. Uh, we also, as a clerk family, go to the Nationals games once a year, and it gives us an opportunity to cheer on uh, the hometown team, but also to can, um, continue to build the bonds within the clerk network and to enjoy each other's company and to keep in touch with the judge. And um, it's a wonderful opportunity, but also shows what's important to the judge, which is family, friends, and community. Um, I think that Judge Kavanaugh is a firm believer in sports, that it teaches you integrity, hard work, how to win and lose, um, teamwork, perseverance. I might be repeating myself. Um, but I think that he's going to take the character and the work ethic that he developed as an athlete and now as a coach of his daughter's basketball teams and also as a lifelong sports fan um, to the U.S. Supreme Court if he were to be confirmed. And those qualities would make him an excellent uh, colleague and jurist. And um, I, like my colleagues, am so grateful to have clerked for him and to know him and to continue to call him a friend. Thanks, John, for having me. It's, it's great to be here. I'm very honored to be here with my uh, fellow members of the extended Kavanaugh clerk family. I guess my clerk sisters. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, one of the nice things uh, about this whole process and, and after Judge Kavanaugh's nomination and, and the run-up to it uh, is the ability to reconnect with folks that I clerked with, folks who clerked different years. And the thing that's really uh, heartening about that is the enthusiasm and the passion that clerks feel for Judge Kavanaugh. The ones who agree with him, every opinion he's ever written, the ones who disagree with a lot of his opinions, everyone, I think, can come, come together and unite around the fact that they have a lot of respect for him as a boss, as a judge, and I think they feel like uh, he is not only qualified, but has the, the integrity uh, and the judgment um, to have received this nomination. And, and, and I know we certainly hope he'll be confirmed. I, uh, I clerked for Judge Kavanaugh in 2008 2009. Uh, I had met him a few years earlier, very briefly, when I was working in the White House, and he was at the White House uh, at the same time. He was much more senior than I was, and so I didn't work uh, very closely with him, but I met him a few times, and he had a wonderful reputation in the White House uh, for being meticulous, for being detail-oriented, for being an honest broker, um, and making sure that the president had the advice of all his advisors, and being very even-handed. I reconnected with him. I think it may have been at the same dinner. Um, that, that Sarah met him at uh, on campus. And I was very excited to sit and talk with him a little bit more and very excited about the opportunity to apply to clerk with him. And so I clerked with him in 2008, 2009. Uh, it was an amazing apprenticeship experience, as, as my colleagues have talked about already. Uh, and I've had been very happy and privileged to be to have stayed in close touch with him in the decade or so since then. I want to talk a little bit about what I saw in my clerkship and, and, and in the years since. And I think uh, three points that, that are worth emphasizing. Uh, the first has to do with Judge Kavanaugh's judicial philosophy. Uh, as a law clerk, you get a front row seat to a judge, and you really see how he thinks about the law and how 
He decides cases. And I think Judge Kavanaugh's judicial philosophy, uh, as we'll see more at the hearings, and, and you know, we've, we saw him already describe it uh, in public on July 9th, his judicial philosophy is simple and it's profound. His, his view is that the role of the courts is to interpret the law, not to make the law. He says that you need to follow the text, understood in light of history and tradition and precedent. Uh, when he's deciding cases, he's deciding cases not based on whether he happens to like or dislike the litigant in front of him, whether the issue is a big issue that's going to be on the front pages or a small one that, that no one's ever going to read about. He applies the law fairly in all the cases that come before him. He believes that the role of judges is to enforce the Constitution and to be robust and to be energetic and energized in enforcing the rights that are in the Constitution and that are provided by federal statutes. But at the same time, he has an appropriate conception of, of the role that the judiciary plays. And he knows that the role of judges, the role of courts, is not to try to solve every problem in society. And so clerking for him, you, you saw him articulate these principles both in his opinions and in chambers. And what really shone through is the way that, that his judicial philosophy is not results-oriented. It's not about pushing his own personal preferences in one case or another. Rather, it's, it's trying to get to, to faithful application of the law in every case. So when I was clerking, we had a number of, of high-profile cases where I think he illustrated both his judicial philosophy and his commitment to independence and even-handedness. Um, we had two very high-profile election law cases. Uh, one of those cases, the, the, uh, the plaintiff in the case was a, uh, a pro-democratic group that, that raises money and spends money to elect pro-choice candidates for office. Um, that group was challenging uh, certain FC, FEC regulations, inhibiting its ability to uh, you know, advance its views in the public sphere. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh uh, ended up siding with that group, represented at the time by someone who would go on to be President Obama's uh, White House counsel. Uh, he did it not because he has some special fondness in his heart for pro-choice Democrats, um, but rather because that's what he understood the First Amendment to require. Um, he would have come out the same way if the litigant in front of him had been uh, uh, pro-life Republicans. Uh, another case that, that I had with Judge Kavanaugh, another election law case, involved a, a challenge by the Republican Party to um, to a statute that was being enforced by the FEC to the to the McCain uh, aspects of the McCain-Feingold statute. In that case, Judge Kavanaugh once again heard the, the the arguments on both sides. And though I think a lot of people might have expected him as someone who had served in a Republican administration to be predisposed to the Republican Party's point of view, he ruled against the Republicans and he explained why their arguments had merit in certain ways. But he ultimately concluded that in light of precedent, in light of the Supreme Court's decision in the McConnell case, he was bound by precedent, and that meant he was going to rule against them, and he was going to apply precedent faithfully. A third case that was especially interesting and exciting was a, a case called Kiemba, where uh, it involved a detainee who, uh, in a war of terrorism detainee, who the admin, uh, Obama administration was trying to transfer to a foreign country. And the question was, involved the president's ability to make this transfer and the extent of judicial review that was available. Um, Judge Kavanaugh in that case looked at the arguments, he sided with President Obama, he approved the transfer, but his opinion was very clear that he did not believe that the president has a blank check when it comes to national security. And so he wrote an opinion, a concurring opinion, that explained how in our system of, of separation of powers, of checks and balances, 
Congress has a big role to play in this area. And though, even though he was ruling for President Obama in this case, that didn't mean that the president always wins in the national security arena. And I've seen this same sort of approach, um, applying his judicial philosophy fairly, impartially, being independent-minded in cases over and over again uh, since I left the clerkship. You know, Judge Kavanaugh has often sided uh, for plaintiffs who espouse conservative positions, but he's also often sided for plaintiffs who espouse non-conservative positions. Um, he's rejected a couple of challenges to uh, the Affordable Care Act statute, something that a lot of Republicans weren't happy with him for. Um, he's, he's upheld agency actions. Uh, at the same time, he's struck down agency actions when he thinks that, the, that agencies go beyond their authority. He's also respected the rights of criminal defendants while also ruling for the government in cases where that's appropriate. Uh, across the board, I think his, his record is one that's balanced um, and that is uh, faithful to his judicial philosophy. Uh, and it's one that, that I think Americans can have confidence in, even if they disagree with aspects of his judicial philosophy. I think they should have confidence that he has the integrity to apply his philosophy faithfully and independently in every case. The second thing uh, that I want to emphasize is Judge Kavanaugh's intellectual uh, openness, his open-mindedness. That was something that I think all of us saw during our clerkships. Uh, it manifested itself in a number of different ways. First, as some of my colleagues have mentioned, his, his process for deciding cases. Uh, whenever we had a case in Judge Kavanaugh's chambers, uh, in the run-up to the oral argument and when, when the opinions were being prepared, he'd invite us into his chambers. We'd sit around as a group. We'd debate the issues. He would want to hear every point of view on, on the issue. I think he wanted to hear that from his law clerks, and he also made sure that his law clerks were diverse, diverse in terms of gender, in terms of race, but also in terms of, of viewpoints, people who had different perspectives on the law. And Judge Kavanaugh has a, a, a firm judicial philosophy that he adheres to, but he knows that sometimes the best way to apply that judicial philosophy fairly is to hear, um, hear competing arguments and make sure that, that you know, that you're actually being fair and you're not letting personal bias get in the way. And so he made sure that our, uh, his law clerks would test him and, and hold his feet to the fire in that way. Judge Kavanaugh's open-mindedness, I think, was also apparent in the extent to which he engaged with the legal academy. Uh, my other boss, Chief Justice Roberts, sometimes likes to poke fun at legal academics for not always being entirely relevant to the cases that judges are facing. I think Judge Kavanaugh's approach uh, is to devour every law, artic law review article he can find on any given topic. I remember at one point in our clerkship, um, two very liberal professors at Harvard published an uh, important article about the president's authority in wartime. Uh, I think it was Professors uh, Barron and Lederman. And even though Judge Kavanaugh may not have agreed with everything in that article, he thought it was so well done that he insisted that all of his clerks read the article and that we get together to discuss it, to integrate its insights into our thinking as we were thinking about the law and thinking about, about cases. Um, I think that intellectual openness is very important, and I think that's what's led a lot of uh, prominent folks who disagree with Judge Kavanaugh to nonetheless say nice things about him in this confirmation process. Uh, people like uh, President Obama's former Solicitor General, Don Verrilli, who's talked about Judge Kavanaugh's graciousness, um, his intellectual openness, uh, leading uh, constitutional scholars like Akhil Amar, who've said, you know, I'm not a Republican. I, he wouldn't have been the person I appointed if I were president, but I'm glad that President Trump, as a Republican, appointed Brett Kavanaugh because of his openness uh, to, to different ideas and competing points of view. The final point I'll make uh, is just about his other personal qualities, uh, which I think everyone has touched on. Um, you know, he's, he's a, a great... Uh, devotee to his family, of course, 
uh, both his real family and his Clark family. Uh, he engages very collegially with his colleagues. Um, and he knows that, that although there are robust disagreements to be had about the law, uh, there are also things that people have in common as Americans, as citizens, as people who are uh, in good faith trying to reach the right answers on these hard questions. I was particularly impressed um, and proud of Judge Kavanaugh. I'm proud to have worked for him when um, in the midst of a very contentious political debate uh, over uh, Judge Garland's nomination, uh, Judge Kavanaugh went out and in public. You know, He wasn't going to take a position on whether to confirm or not confirm anyone. But he was he, he thought the right thing to do in that circumstance was to uh, tell people that he thought, you know, Judge Garland was one of his heroes. Uh, he thought he was supremely qualified and he wasn't going to say anything bad about uh, about Judge Garland. And, you know, I'm not sure that everyone would have done that. But I think Judge Kavanaugh thought that's what he felt and that's what he was going to say in public. And he was going to let the chips fall where they may, even if if that was going to give him criticism in certain quarters. So I think that. You know, I, I, I want to echo, I think, Sarah's comments that all these personal qualities, they're good, they're intrinsically good in their own right, but I think they're also relevant to his role as a judge and potentially his role as a justice. Uh, Slate Magazine published a piece uh, a few days ago, 1,200 words on why it really doesn't matter what Judge Kavanaugh's character is. It doesn't matter whether he's nice or not. What matters is his philosophy and the results he's going to reach. And I just don't think that's right. I think that, that when, when judges take the judicial oath to be impartial, that's an oath that, that turns upon um, their character, that turns upon their honesty and their integrity. And I think that the qualities that Judge Kavanaugh has, his honesty, his integrity, his even-handedness, uh, are, are qualities that are going to make him an outstanding Supreme Court justice. Well, thank you, Ramon. So in a moment, I'm going to open this up to questions. Uh, I'd ask that you raise your hands. And when I uh, call upon you, uh, wait until the microphone arrives, then uh, briefly identify yourselves. And then that will be your opportunity to ask a question, but not to offer a commentary. Uh, I will take the moderator's prerogative and begin with a question. So three of you went to Yale Law School. And recently, uh, a letter came out from some faculty members and Yale Law students that was severely critical, uh, that's putting it mildly, of Judge Kavanaugh. I'm going to offer just a few quotes from the letter. Uh, one said, Judge Kavanaugh's nomination presents an emergency for democratic life, for our safety and freedom, for the future of our country. Later it says, Judge Kavanaugh would also act as a rubber stamp for, President's Trump, for President Trump's fraud and abuse. He is referred to as intellectually and morally bankrupt ideologue. And, and the letter goes on to say that people will die if he is confirmed. Uh, and I'm wondering what, uh, what all of you, you don't have to have gone to Yale to respond to this, uh, would say in response to this uh, to this letter to these concerned Yale students and faculty members. Take it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess, you know, I, it's certainly one thing to engage in reasoned debate about judicial ideology or the outcomes of particular cases. And um, I and my co-clerks and Judge Kavanaugh are happy to engage in those debates. The unfortunate fact about that Yale letter was that it, it did not engage in any debate. It didn't take on Judge Kavanaugh or his views in, in good faith at all. Instead, it was um, unhinged from reality, in my view. Um, I, I, maybe those are strong words, but <laughs> I, I, they seem appropriate here. Uh, there, was, there was also a response letter, uh, which many people, many students, faculty, and alumni from Yale Law School also signed that um, made essentially the, 
points that I'm just saying now that, you know, uh, Judge Kavanaugh is a well-respected jurist and that the views expressed in the original uh, Yale letter don't represent the views of everyone from Yale Law School. Uh, in fact, far from it. Um, I think that response letter didn't maybe get quite as much play in the media, but it, it certainly, I think, to me, captured how I felt as an, an alumni of the law school. Um, and probably my cohorts as well, but I'll let them, if they want to add anything. I think uh, I, I think that letter's inconsistent with uh, what, what anyone would say if they actually knew Judge Kavanaugh, and I would not put a lot of stock into it. It's also not representative, as Becca pointed out, of Yale Law School. Um, there are all kinds of people at Yale Law School, and, uh, and they have all kinds of opinions, and uh, that letter shouldn't be taken as emblematic of what the entire school thinks of one of its most distinguished alums. People can start to raise their uh, hands if they have uh, any questions. Uh, let me ask one more, and then we'll come down here uh, with the gentleman right here. So, so three of you went on to clerk on the Supreme Court uh, for uh, Justices uh, Scalia and Chief Justice Robertson. I'm just curious to get your impressions as to in what ways you think Judge Kavanaugh, should he be confirmed, would be similar to or different from them? I'll start. Um, I think one thing that Chief Justice Roberts and Judge Kavanaugh have in common is they're just both unfailingly gracious to their law clerks, to their colleagues, to anyone that they will come across. Having worked for both of them, I don't think I ever heard either of them raise their voice to a law clerk, to somebody that they disagreed with. Um, if they had to wait in line um, an extra long time because the valet had lost the keys to their car, they just they don't lose their temper. They are just incredibly civil and collegial people. Um, I think both the Chief Justice and Judge Kavanaugh also appropriately respect the role of Congress as Congress, not the court, should be deciding um, political issues and they will both um, enforce that and respect the proper role of the other branches and um, when they decide cases. I think with respect to Justice Scalia, um, Judge Kavanaugh and the late Justice Scalia had a lot in common in terms of judicial philosophy and Judge Kavanaugh has said or written that Justice Scalia was a, a hero to him as a, a role model as a judge. Um, I think those similarities are going to be obvious in terms of things like textualism, um, approach to cases. There are some differences. I think Justice Scalia was famous for um, writing a very strongly worded dissent, for example, that would bring out sort of the worst in a majority opinion. You know, point out that if the majority opinion is in fact correct, then you know we're not just at step A; we're all the way at, at step Z already. And I think. Uh, my guess would be that Judge Kavanaugh is unlikely to pursue that particular strategy. Uh, instead, he um, is a very sort of disciplined and restrained writer in dissent as well as in, major in the majority opinion and uh, very concerned with collegiality and, and things like that. And so I think his opinions will have a, a different flavor than Justice Scalia's did. Come on down, the microphone. Hi, my name is Penny Starr. I'm with Breitbart News. I've been to some of the protests, the anti-Kavanaugh protests, and interesting to hear from three women because the one of their main complaints is they think he will be a very uh, bad juror as far as women go, women's rights, reproductive rights, and other rights. Um, of course, it runs the gamut from environmental law on down, but uh, they seem to be using 
uh, his views on women's rights as a main reason to oppose him. So if you could comment on that. Um, I, I think that the Ferris, well, first of all, I talked, you know, in my earlier remarks about his support for women personally, and, and that is so true. And as Sarah and Roman have said, you know, his personal characteristics are relevant to uh, his jurisprudence in that regard. And you can look at his body of cases, you know, he's got a large uh, record, a long record on the D.C. Circuit, and find examples of him applying the law impartially, often to the benefit of female litigants. So I guess off the top of my head, I can think of um, a case involving a, a female criminal defendant who was convicted of a crime at the trial court and then appealed to the D.C. Circuit. And Judge Kavanaugh wrote an opinion reversing the trial court and holding that the trial court inappropriately limited the woman's ability to present evidence about battered woman syndrome because she had been beaten by her boyfriend. And her argument was that uh, those repeated beatings had contributed to her criminality and were exculpatory with respect to her criminal liability. And Judge Kavanaugh wrote an opinion over a dissent from a judge often viewed as conservative saying, yes, the trial court did err. And this woman, I think it's Queen Noye, Noye was her name, so that's the name of the case, uh, should have been able to present this evidence, and that was an error. And so that's an example of Judge Kavanaugh taking each case as it comes, applying the law impartially, and unsurprisingly, that often does result in an outcome that favors women. Uh, I just wanted to add that I think any special interest group that's looking at the judge and trying to evaluate what he's going to do for them when he's on the bench is just looking at this question the wrong way and um, misunderstanding Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, because uh, as we discussed at length, so I won't belabor it, that's just not the way he approaches cases, you know. Uh, and he has a long record of not approaching cases from the point of view of which constituency the outcome will serve, right? Um, and so I, I think probably every special interest group would find something to like in his record and probably something to dislike, you know? Uh, so I just think that that's kind of a, a distraction from what the real conversation should be. There's a hand up back there. What I heard from the panel, uh, it looks that uh, rather than discussing how judge uh, as a Supreme Court is going to improve uh, administration of justice, that kind of stuff, they provided how th he was nice to them. Because that's not the issue. The issue is not that uh, 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 except uh, Roman, that uh, a little bit talked about the uh, judges, uh, you know, uh, soft, a little bit philosophy. But the rest of them I wasn't expecting. I was expecting to get something that regarding what he is going to do with the, uh, regarding uh, uh, his philosophy for administrating justice and improving justice. Do you have a question for these? That, that's, that's my question. What is his... Uh, uh, philosophy or action or uh, any plan how to, as a Supreme Court justice, to improve 
justice in the country rather than be nice to the ladies. Thank you. Would like to address that? I'd like to start out by saying um, that I think this panel was brought together specifically to talk about the judge as a boss, as a mentor, as a friend, and there have been other oppor um, opportunities, other panels that the Heritage Foundation has sponsored specifically related to his jurisprudence, and I'm sure those are available online um, if you'd like to go back and look at them. And there'll be one next week. One additional one next week. Um, but in general, I think anyone that's looking to know how Judge Kavanaugh would rule on a certain case, we can't speak to that. But I think that Roman in particular did give a lot of specifics about how the judge approaches cases, both in his process. And he's been on the D.C. Circuit for 12 years, has written more than 300 opinions. And that long proven record of applying the law faithfully in every case of his strict fealty to precedent um, and respecting precedent and decisions that have been both decided by the D.C. Circuit and the U.S. Supreme Court and following those and um, just treating all litigants alike in all instances, whether they are people that are popular or unpopular or big corporations or small individuals, um, I think that his record stands for itself. I'm Tom Jipping. I'm director or deputy director. Sorry, you're you're the director <laughs> the, uh, uh, of the the Mies Center here at the Heritage Foundation. The Yale letter that was mentioned had that line in it about you know women will die, and there and there have been other statements that were very apocalyptic about um, the future of the country is at stake, and this is on a path to tyranny, and we're all going to fall into the abyss, and all that sort of thing. And while some of that is kind of over the top, it does reflect a view that the judiciary is really, you know, the, the, the center of gravity, that it decides all of these things, that the future of all reality is up to the courts to decide. Um, what, what is, how would, you, how would you describe Judge Kavanaugh's view of sort of that place of the courts in the <coughs> the larger sphere of things, and, and did he communicate that to you as clerks to keep in mind as you did your work as clerks? So I think, uh, I think it's a great question, and I think it's, a, it's a, a subtle answer. I think Judge Kavanaugh, maybe the, the most important theme of his jurisprudence is his devotion to the separation of powers. Um, sitting on the D.C. Circuit, he gets a lot of cases involving conflicts uh, between agencies, you know, high-profile conflicts involving presidential power versus the power of Congress. In every case, he's, of course, got to consider the role of the courts. And I think if you look at his decisions as a whole, they show um, two things that are maybe in tension with one another, but I think are also reflect the constitutional reality, which is that uh, in cases where the court has a role to play, um, where there's text that has to be interpreted and applied, where a party has standing to challenge uh, an issue or to raise an issue in court, I think Judge Kavanaugh believes there is a robust role for the courts to be there. It's very important for the courts to um, enforce uh, restrictions on the president, for example, if he's overstepping statutory or constitutional bounds. He's been very clear about that in case after case, uh, including in, in some cases where traditionally there were doctrines in the D.C. Circuit that would say, you know, this is a political question, this can't be decided by courts, and Judge Kavanaugh's view is no, actually, there's constitutional language here that needs to be enforced, and the courts have a role in doing that. So I think he has a very robust view of the judiciary as a, a protector of, of the constitutional structure of individual rights. Uh, at the same time, though, I think he also recognized that the judicial role is limited in certain ways. 
I think he recognizes that the court's role is not to make policy, is not to act as, uh, you know, to use a, a term that uh, Justice Kagan used recently, act as a sort of junior varsity legislature. And so if, if people are asking him to come in and solve some social problem and there's no law on the topic and they're coming to him because he's as a judge and maybe he can issue an opinion that's going to have an effect, I think he's going to be very skeptical of that. And so I think he, he recognizes, on the one hand, that courts have to be engaged, have to exercise their power robustly. On the other hand, uh, in other types of cases where courts lack authority, they need to be restrained. And I think that's the, that's the duality that the Constitution requires. And I think Judge Kavanaugh has honored that throughout his career and would do that on the Supreme Court as well. Other questions? Uh, Michael Krauss, uh, George Mason Law School. Um, so I am the parent of one of the panelists. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, in part because I got to know the judge uh, through uh, my daughter's uh, clerkship, uh, he came and get, delivered a uh, uh, convocation speech at graduation at our law school. I should say that in 32 years at George Mason, having listened to 32 graduation speeches, all of which except one were canned speeches that could have been delivered at any law school. I was forever impressed by the care taken by Judge Kavanaugh in particularizing and researching, talking about George Mason. My question to the panel is, um, uh, although I myself also attended Yale Law School, as did three of the people here, what are the chances that Judge Kavanaugh will emulate the only justice on the Supreme Court who hires clerks who are not from the Ivy League, Chicago, or Stanford. Um, interested in knowing your thoughts about that since you know the man. I'm happy to take this one as the non-Yale grad. <laughs> um, I think that Judge Kavanaugh, you'll see him look at applicants and hire applicants from a wide variety of schools. Um, the judge takes clerk hiring very seriously. And when we were all clerks, I think we can all talk about the process where um, he didn't just rely on us to kind of sift through the resumes and hand him who we thought was best. He wanted to see all of them. He wanted to look at them all himself. And, um, and he really did take time to do the due diligence in talking to professors and um, reading letters of recommendation, reading the entire packet to make sure that he understood um, who individual applicants were and their strengths and weaknesses. And I think he cares a lot about making sure that he gets people, as Ramon said, from um, diverse backgrounds, not just gender and race, but also socioeconomic backgrounds, schools, um, and a diversity of experience. And so I think you'll continue to see him as a justice continue to hire um, a lot of um, women and also people from schools outside the Ivy Leagues. We have time for a couple more questions down here. Uh, my name is Kami Bhattan with the Pakistani Spectator. And my question is, if you know Judge Kavanaugh's personal thought um, about this uh, uh, separating children from their parents and Muslim ban kind of issues, because if you know his thought about this, it would tell how he would react in, when he is on the, in the Supreme Court about does he have leaning toward more rule of law or he is, uh, you know, uh, uh, would think about what media think, what international community think about uh, human rights issues. Thanks. I think uh, I probably speak for all of us that I, I haven't had any conversations with Judge Kavanaugh on that topic. I think 
I would just say generally that I'm confident if that issue were to come before him as a justice, um, he would look at the law, he would look at all the issues that you mentioned and, and everything that, that both sides have to say on it and do his best to apply the law. But I haven't had a personal conversation with him about it. Hi, my name is Mendel. I'm interning uh, in the House. Um, just going on the last question regarding uh, clerking out of Ivy at uh, non-Ivy League schools. Um, as a student about to start law school at a non-Ivy League school, um, what are your tips or suggestions to of things to do besides for getting good grades and all the <laughs> classic stuff? Um, to catch the eye of someone such as Judge Kavanaugh and other um, esteemed judges throughout the country? This isn't a Kavanaugh-specific question, so I'll offer a couple of quick tips, and then we'll take one more Kavanaugh-related question. <laughs> well, first, <laughs> learn the names of the judges. <laughs> My first pro tip. I think it helps to get to know your professors. Um, <clears throat> many law schools are quite large, and when you are applying for a um, – a clerkship, there are more qualified applicants that can possibly um, be hired just because of the small number of judges and, and clerks and chambers. And I think it really is a big difference when you have a recommendation from somebody who can not just say, I got an A in your class, but this person has engaged with me on legal questions throughout the semester and they've shown curiosity in these areas and I know how serious they are and um, can say a little bit more about your um, interest in the law and how you approach legal questions and your analytical ability. And those letters really make a big difference. Good luck to you. We have a question over here. Last question. Uh, thank you. Uh, many of you have referenced uh, the fact that uh, Judge Kavanaugh respects precedents. I was wondering if any of you can think of any case where he has actually reversed a precedent uh, from his court or one of the other circuit courts? You know, I'm not sure I have. It would, it would be an unusual case in which he's allowed to actually do that because he's bound by the precedents of his court, and he's certainly bound by the precedents of the Supreme Court. There may be examples where he's been on an en banc uh, panel where he would do that. I, I, do think, um, I do think it's interesting. You know, He's made some comments um, talking about Justice Scalia um, where he's, he's talked about some precedents where he thinks Justice Scalia may have been right. I don't know that he said he's endorsed overturning them. Um, but, you know, the case that comes to mind was a case uh, from, I think it was 2004, involving the detention of a U.S. citizen who was, uh, I think, fighting alongside al-Qaeda, and he was, he was captured. And the, the Supreme Court held over a dissent from Justice Scalia that it was okay for the, the executive branch, um, with President Bush then in charge, to detain this U.S. US citizen under the authorization to use force that was enacted after September 11th. Justice Scalia dissented from that, and in a speech that Judge Kavanaugh gave, he, um, you know, he sort of indicated that he thought Justice Scalia's dissent had a lot of uh, a lot of strong points to it, and and I think that reflects reflected his view that U.S. citizens have a special place in our constitutional system, and that it's important to protect liberty and protect liberty even in, in wartime, uh, even when uh, there are threats of to national security. Uh, but even in that case, I'm not sure he suggested overturning that precedent, and, and my guess is he's probably not going to be. You know, speculating about what he'll he'll want to be overturning and not overturning uh, in the weeks to come and in his hearing. And uh, just to add to that, I've certainly read. Maybe someone can remind me uh, cases in which he has said, "I think this precedent might be wrongly decided, but I'm applying it here anyway." You know, so I 
um, he, the man has a, a healthy respect for precedent. Two points I would add. Um, in the D.C. Circuit, there's um, a case called Irons where if a panel thinks that a previous decision of the D.C. Circuit should be overturned, they can ask their colleagues whether they can overturn it in that panel decision. And I don't want to quote an exact number, but I, I believe Judge Kavanaugh has never or almost very sparingly ever used that. Um, I don't remember my term. I don't remember. And no cases come to mind where he tried to overturn um, D.C. Circuit precedent, one of his panel decisions. And he's also taken a broad view to the um, importance of Supreme Court precedent. Some courts will say only the holding is what is binding on us, but some of the language explaining the holding is not binding. And Judge Kavanaugh has several opinions where he says, it's not my job to parse what the, DC, what the Supreme Court says, what, what's binding and not binding Supreme Court precedent um, needs to be taken very seriously, and he applies it. Please join me in thanking our panel. <laughs> Thank you.